0: Here we go, Adrian. Wonderful to see you again. It's, it's, I, I don't even remember when I last saw you. And I also don't remember when I first saw you, uh, but it's, it was a long time ago,
1: I think.
2: I was wondering about that, actually, earlier on. I think it was definitely via our mutual friend, Tony Levin. And it was either whilst you were part of Stickmen mm-hmm. or it would have been backstage at a King Crimson concert. I can't remember which.
0: When, when did you start doing Merch um, for Crimson?
2: Um, well, I was kind of doing Merch and tour managing as well. That first, the short run in America in 2008, I think it was.
1: Yeah, that's where we
2: met. Yeah, that's where we met. Was, yeah, where which met. was Adrian Ballou, Tony, Robert, Gavin Harrison for the first time, and Pat. So, yeah, it was probably on that run, yeah. which was a wonderful little run of shows. And it's a pity that that lineup didn't go on to
0: anything else. Yeah, it was it was sort of like a really, uh, really kind of like almost like an in between world kind of experience, it was, yeah. though, right?
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. And you know, like that they they had like these rehearsals after the 2003 band fall up, uh, fell apart. Uh, they had uh, rehearsals with Tony and Adrian and Pat and Robert as a like yeah. as a quartet. Yeah yeah and um and uh, nothing ever ever came out of that but uh, i have a tape of the rehearsal section session and wow, it's yeah. it's it's pretty interesting there was like some some cool potentially cool material there and uh yeah. and so i was it was kind of like I mean, yeah, I enjoyed the shows, but uh, I would have liked to hear some new material at that point. But then obviously yeah. that, that didn't happen. And that yeah. was the 40th uh, anniversary tour.
2: It was, yeah. 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 And I say that was, we started in, I think we did rehearsals in Nashville and we did the warm-up shows in Nashville.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then it was, a, it was a relatively short run. I think we did Chicago, Philadelphia, and then we finished up with, I think it was three or four nights in New York. Which were fantastic. Those shows were absolutely great, and and I know the band were on a real high after it. But as these things happen <laughs> or don't happen, mm-hmm, that exactly. lineup was not meant to be any more than that. But yeah. So
0: were you were you doing uh, were you also working with Porcupine Tree before two thousand
2: eight? basically, my background is I've sort of led led two lives in terms of jobs. When I uh, left university, I went into it and worked on big ibm mainframe computers doing systems programming and did that for many years ended up working for a a sort of consultancy company going around various customers ford and um, some of the government uh, government contracts in the uk and all sorts of things and then the company was sort of taken over and restructured And despite my sort of branch being one of the the highest revenue-earning branches, we got cut because it didn't fit with the new image. Mm. Um, So out of the blue, I was out of a job, totally unexpected. Um, Luckily, walked back into a very similar job with a different consultancy. But going through that, and this was around early 2000s, made me think, well, do I actually want to wear a suit and tie and sit behind a desk and drive in rush hour traffic and give most of the money that I earn to the company that is above me? And I thought, you know, I don't know whether I do or not.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So over the next few years, um, I, I'd always sort of, I've been an amateur drummer myself, but I'd always sort of done, put on concerts and, and, and various bits and pieces in that world and then chatting with people and i sort of said like i'd really like to to move into that that live touring world if i could Mm -hmm. uh and then because i'd come from a drumming background i managed to get some work with as drum tech initially and was lucky enough from from sort of word of mouth recommendations to work with some fantastic players i don't know if you know andy gangadine who's played with massive Attack and, Mm -hmm. and loads and loads of people and andy's a such a lovely guy and an amazing player using hybrid kits of acoustic and electronics and samples and one thing, another. Mm-hmm. amazing, amazing player. Uh, and from that, that led on to working with um, Steve Hogarth's band, the H band, and then via that into Porcupine Tree. Basically I started as Gavin's drum tech.
1: Oh, I didn't um, know.
2: Yeah. And then on this was around the time of the, the second leg of the tours for In an Absentia.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and they said, I said, would you mind like selling a few T-shirts and, and CDs before and after the gig as well? And I went, oh, that's fine. That's why I, I enjoy meeting people and whatever. And after that first run at the end of, I think it was 2003, I sort of said to the guy, that said, like, you know, you could make so much more revenue with your merchandise because you've got fans that if you've got a good product, they will buy it. So really sort of grew that both online and at concerts over the next few years to the point where that got so busy, I couldn't look after Gavin properly anymore. So I had to sort of relinquish my drum tech duties. And then with PT, did odd bits standing in for the tour manager on a couple of short runs and odd shows here and there as well. Um, so it, it's kind of been my, my work in the music industry. I've, I've never been snobbish about it. If a job comes in, it's looked interesting or it's a, and interesting artists, so whether it's drum teching or merchandise or tour managing, I, I really don't mind any of those or mixing and matching them. Um, and yeah, and then you know, uh, with merchandise initially, uh, got to work with Steve Hackett from Genesis around about 10 years ago now, and then for the last five years, my primary role has been tour managing Steve's tours around the world, and we were in the middle of a, a US run. March last year, when the world went crazy, and we flew home forty-eight hours later.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: So I'm just back from. I've had my second AstraZeneca jab this afternoon.
0: Congratulations.
2: <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, and I'm sort of hoping that you know the vaccine rollout continues and that really with the relaxation of the rules that people don't go crazy and aren't silly and still maintain sort of you know do the social distancing and do the masks because it does make a difference mm-hmm. so that hopefully by the autumn you know we can we can start doing some live shows again because it's been a long time.
0: <laughs> so um, having, having come from an IT career um, did you ever look back
2: Oh, no. (laughs) No, but I think of the the miles that I used to put in driving to and from clients and and then having Mm. to put an eight hour day in. Um, Mm. And at the time, it was good. I had some lovely clients that I worked for and and have some friends in that world uh, to this day. But in terms of the, you know, driving, you know, for a long time, I was driving between like four and six hours a day to and from, and then doing a full day's work as well.
1: Oh. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so that side of it, and, and wearing the the penguin suit and the tie. I don't mm-hmm. miss that, have
0: <laughs> But so- somewhat like since you said, the, like like you uh, got into Merge by, um, by accident, in a way, but then you were yeah. making suggestions that were sort of coming from a business standpoint. So you must have had some sort of uh, like business sense.
2: Um. Well, I, I, I never class myself as a salesperson because what I class mm-hmm. a, a salesperson is someone that can sell anything to anybody.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: With me, it's always a case of I've always viewed like doing tour merchandise. I viewed it from a fan's point of view because I've been that fan. I've, I, You know, I've queued up and bought a brush T-shirt or a Genesis programme or whatever in the past mm-hmm. um, and tried to approach it from a fan's point of view. What do they want to see, you know? And it was very much a case of, you know, if it was me, I don't mind paying an extra few pence or whatever to know that the T-shirt's good quality, that it hasn't come from a, a sweatshop somewhere in the Far East, the dye the is good, it's been you know ethically produced and whatever and it's good quality. I'm happy to pay a bit more so I've always mm-hmm. erred down that side of quality uh, you know something that's going to last and something that's a, a good memory of a concert really mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And as, as a fan you would also kind of like know what kind of content uh, like what kind of albums or special editions people, Really would want to buy at a show, which yes, yeah. sort of is uh, yeah, yeah yeah. So um, so like you you were the first person um, that I talked to in this series who suggested a title for the episode even before we recorded <laughs> it. So that's. that's Bob, you said
2: we, for anybody watching or listening, we batted a few messages to and from this week, and, and, and I and one of the ones that you suggested, Marcus, was well how about your record collection yeah uh, as as a as a, a theme or a springboard for, for for jumping off from and I went oh that's a great idea um because for the last at least 45 years record stores or record shops have been my happy place mm-hmm. I can always uh, have fun and enjoyment and and whether I end up buying anything all night or not I'll enjoy that experience mm-hmm. um and what you see behind me which is I think about a thousand albums now Um, that's that's record collection point two Mm -hmm. because the collection that I built up from when I was uh, started at secondary school or high school grammar school in 1973 up to probably about 1990 I foolishly and I know I'm not the only person to do this thought vinyls dead there's so much i can't buy on vinyl anymore Mm -hmm. Um, around sort of 89 90s like frank Zappa was issuing loads of stuff and it was all just on cd Mm -hmm. so i sort of foolishly made that decision right done i'm going to sell my vinyl collection i'm going to sell my record player i'm going to spend that money on a better cd player and more cds Mm -hmm. which is what i did and sort of regretted it on or off and and as time went on, regretted it more and more um, up to the point where I think it was about 2006 where I was with Andrea, my partner, who's now my wife, I'd given up smoking. I'd smoked for quite a long time. And over that year, I'd given up smoking. Andrea said, "Like, you keep on about a record player again. The money that you're saving, not buying cigarettes every day, spend it on a record player and some records mm-hmm. and whilst it's definitely the the healthier choice I don't know financially if that worked out <laughs> or not <laughs> um, so as I say th- this is this is second record collection um mm-hmm. and it, it's all stuff I listen to I, I tend not to I don't buy to invest and I don't buy for the sake of of having a, a particular item I always think, if it's not something you're actually going to play and listen to let somebody else enjoy it let another fan have it who who would appreciate it so it's all stuff i listen to um although i tend to find listening to an album both sides of an album on vinyl it to me is the most rewarding musical experience um that's not to say i don't appreciate that digital music can sound fantastic because i've probably got around about 3000 albums of cd rips or high res downloads on a server and some of those do sound better than the vinyl and sometimes the vinyl sounds better than the digital so
1: mm-hmm.
2: um it's it's never a clear cut thing um, but yeah when we sort of said oh well, let's let's use records as as a springboard, I spent an enjoyable few hours yesterday, digging through the racks behind me. And to my right down here, I've got a a pile of records, which is I sort of divided up into what were some of the very, very first albums that I bought back in, say, starting in 1973. Uh, And subsequently, years after that, what I sort of pick up when it was this whole sort of really exploring what we, what we then classed as serious music as opposed to the pop music that you've got on top of the pops each week. And then some bits and pieces that I've picked up on tour. I'll come on to that later. And then I thought we could finish up with the last few things that I bought on vinyl as well, if that's okay with you.
0: So so one thing that I uh, I know uh, because you, you sent me uh, the names of those first five albums, Uh so you've uh, come full circle working with Steve Hackett um, and have, one of yep. your first records, right?
2: <laughs> one of my very first albums I bought, was this one, mm-hmm. Genesis Live. And this was like, a, it was really intended as a, a stopgap album uh, between Foxtrot and Selling England by the Pound. Selling England came out within a month or two of me buying this album. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, what a fantastic introduction to to sort of progressive rock music, you know. The start of Watcher of the Sky is what an opening for a concert. That's mm-hmm. the keyboard intro on that and the gradual build of us. Wow. Um, and I say this would have, these first few albums would all have been things that I'd bought in uh, September through to December 1973 when I started grammar school and suddenly discovered there was more to music than Top of the Pops and Slade and T-Rex and people like that. Mm-hmm. And you'd see people walking about at school with, with albums like this and, and Fragile by Yes and, and Metal by Pink Floyd. You know, all these strange images on the cover and the people had little metallic pin badges with like the Fandograph Generator logo on or something. Um, and Wait, it was really a case. Which of
0: which which uh, city did you live in back then?
2: Um, I was born in Birmingham, and for the first part of my life, lived in in the West Midlands. So this was around Dudley, ridges, quite an industrial area, which is known as the Black Country. Mm-hmm. Not far away from Peaky Blinders' land, mm-hmm. and in fact, lots of the Peaky Blinders is filmed very close to that area.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Lots of it is filmed at the Black Country Museum. Um, and so it was kind of, of say at school at that time you were, you were sort of in two camps musically you were in like the pop music camp which i say was slade and sweet and mark bowler and, or and typically if you had an elder brother you were into the serious music of pink floyd and yes and genesis jethro Tullum. now i didn't have a brother i was an only child but my friend had an elder brother so via my friend fred his brother used to introduce us to, to these fantastic things. And I and, um, say so up till that point, it was in the UK, there was only three television stations. So everybody t- on a Thursday evening, all families tended to watch Top of the Pops, which was the, the, the hit single chart. Mm-hmm. But then I learned that, oh, late night on BBC Two, there was this thing called the Old Grey Whistle Test. Mm-hmm. And it was the Old Grey Whistle Test that introduced me to the Genesis and I went out and bought this album.
0: Oh, ah, I see.
2: And, then, and they're seated down. Is is I'm trying to think of his on. oh very dark from the corner there. Is Boss to be Mr. Hackett? Yeah.
0: So um life albums uh back then in the seventies. I I was too young to know, but were they considered to be lesser albums than studio albums, or were they? what
2: yeah,
1: do you remember I think that?
2: The, 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 there was a kind of thing of they were they were stop gaps whilst there might have been a change in lineup or it was taking longer than planned to write and record the next album so sometimes things came out of stop gaps i mean the other ones around that time um, a few of which are on the racks behind me um, deep purple made in japan mm-hmm. massive album at that time and i think with certain bands and i'd probably put deep purple as one them. i don't know whether any of the studio albums properly captured the energy of that band as as made in japan did um which i think of a few other examples Uh, there's the the
0: the peter frampton album right Uh, yeah
2: yeah there again enormous in america i mean a a big hit in the uk as well Mm -hmm. the frampton comes alive thing um cheap trick at wood which i love cheap trick and, and got into them around the time of that and it was never, never intended as an album. It was meant as a, a Japanese promotion record.
1: Mm-hmm. But then
2: somebody in America started playing, and everything started selling out. All the import copies started selling out. So it was released in America. Then the following year, it's released in the UK, and and I saw that tour, which was fantastic. But yeah, I think there, there was um, there was to a certain extent they were seen as as, as stopgaps or fillers.
0: Um, when when did you start? drumming
2: pretty soon after probably 1974 so around pretty early on because uh, I say from that point where I started discovering this this world of music um, it became the most important thing to me Uh, and you know the thought of actually being in a band and making music with other people uh, was fascinating and There were quite a few I I couldn't sing. Once my voice had broke, I used to be quite good at young school choirs. I was very good. Once my voice broke, I can't hold a note. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I couldn't sing. Uh, There were quite a lot of other guitarists and bass players around. Keyboards looked way too hard work. Drums, drums. There was only one other drummer in the entire school. So you were in demand if you were a drummer. (laughs) <laughs> so that's where that, that's initially why I started down the route of drums.
0: So, my, so you, your parents supported you uh, to get you to have. Very, yeah,
2: yeah, very much so. Yeah, you've got to have supportive parents if you're going to play drums because you can't do it quietly. Um, and and,
0: all, and also the record collection. Did you did you earn that money yourself or like?
2: That was probably mostly pocket money. Uh, yeah, was mm-hmm. it? Um, but I mean, one of the other of my first albums, which is this one, definitely early drum hero, Cole Palmer, because uh, I bought this album there again, late 1973, when it first came out um, and you'd read in the music papers like Melody Maker and, and Sounds and the NME, you know, you'd read tales of you know Keith Emerson attacking his keyboards with knives. And these massive banks of analog synths that he had behind him, and Greg Lake standing on his Persian carpet that the roadie would hoover before they came on stage, and then at the back you had Carl Palmer with this massive custom-built stainless steel drum kit and, and gongs behind him, and it's just like wow, you know, in terms of a visual impact. I never got to see ELP around this era. I saw them later on,
1: mm-hmm. but I
2: never got to see them around this era. But there again, it's it's the whole thing it's not just the music, it's it's everything else. I mean, talk about a fantastic cover for one of your first albums that you buy. You've got the Geiger cover, of course. Geiger went on to do all the sets and stuff for Alien. Mm-hmm. It's you've got fold out things, you've got posters and lyric sheets inside. Is, so is that an fun.
0: original? That's the original pressing? No, you sold that, right? I, I
2: did this isn't my original one. This is a original one, this is backwards. Okay. I think it was the first thing that they issued on their own label, Manticore, because it's got the, hold it up, it's got the, yeah. Yeah. the album yeah. cover on there. It, it was the first thing I think that they issued on their, under their own label, Manticore. Um, it,
0: you know, this was actually the first time I, I saw the cover in real life, I, you know, like with a fold yeah. out and like, uh,
2: and then even the insert folds out as well. so it's it's it's
0: yeah. a fantastic piece of art. Um, it's interesting because like so, so um, um, you seem to well, I know that you're like an enthusiast, right? And you still are after all these years. And now seeing that your introduction um includes sort of like the full package, right? So it's not just the music. It is the packaging is it's the artwork it is yeah. the it is the uh, beginning of beginnings of you becoming a musician yourself and so everything yeah. like that happened ar- around i don't know how old were you 11 12 10 or something like that or? yeah 11 yeah.
2: 12 uh, initially yes yeah. yes um, which and, and just grabbing the other few that i've got from that era Yeah, uh, my first bowie album was the man insane mm-hmm. uh, i think this had actually come out in the spring of 73 uh, but then went back in the charts later in the year. And, and Bowie, 1973, certainly in the UK, was unbelievable. It, level of fame, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that was way, way up there. And looking back when I was digging out and checking dates yesterday, um, this was, so I bought this in probably September, October, 73, just before pinups came out. Mm -hmm. But at one point over those those sort of first few months of me getting into music, um, we had like five albums in the top 30 in the UK. Mm. This one, which is the most recent, but then people had gone back and rediscovered Ziggy and then gone back from that and discovered Hunky Dory and gone back from that and gone to Man Who Sold the World and then back to Space Oddity. And I say at one point in autumn 73, all five albums were in the charts. Um, and Bowie was another one where, you know, throughout his career, I've, I've sort of followed. The '90s stuff probably not so much. I loved that the Berlin Trilogy. I can I can listen to those three albums over and over again.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, even up to Let's Dance, fantastic. Around sort of, was it never let me down. Was the first one I was like, oh, I'm not sure about this, and then. A few after that, I was kind of not so interested in. And then really got back into Bowie, probably mid two thousands when the Heathen album came out, and I thought Heathen was a real return to form.
0: Yes, let um, me show you something in response. This is the sock oh, I'm wearing. Right.
2: <laughs> Very cool socks. Exactly. Very Wow. Talking mm-hmm. about socks, I, I can't. I, I've got they tucked away in my bedroom next door. But uh, on the last main uh, U.S. tour we did with Steve Hackett, we were invited to um, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland uh, because Steve's an inductee as part of Genesis. He's
1: mm-hmm. got
2: his name on the wall. So we had the VIP tour, mm-hmm. um, backstage as well with all the bits that weren't not on uh, public view and whatever. And at the end, we sort of came out through the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame gift shop. And a uh, lovely host was still like, Well, would you guys like anything from the gift shop before you go? And everybody was picking up t shirts and, and, and keychains and, and this and that. And I picked up two pairs of socks. I picked a Beatles yellow submarine pair of socks mm-hmm. and a multicolored Rolling Stones Lips pair of socks. So I went for the socks as well. <laughs> <laughs> um so next on my pile is um another late 1973 album band on the run support mm. and wings
1: mm. um
2: and i became a big wings fan uh, a big wings fan a big beatles fan but at the time the beatles sort of belonged to the generation before me mm-hmm. um i have like an older um cousin uh, Called Sharon, and, and she, whilst I was at high school, she was at university. Um, and Sharon, bless her, it she introduced me to so much music, and I borrowed her Beatles albums. And that's when I discovered you obviously knew the hits, but that's when you discovered the magic that was all the rest of Sergeant Pepper and, and Abbey Road and things like this. But in terms of the whole Beatles world, this would be the first one that I bought, and and, and still a great album. You've got the title track and Chet and stuff on there. Um and when you think, you know, was it I think it was i might have actually been the night before they were due to fly to Lagos to record the album, two members of the band left.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So the whole album was just uh Denny Lane, Linda McCartney, and Paul McCartney. I think Paul plays all the drums on this.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um and got to see Wings a few years later, um, where there again they took off and were playing like the enormous domes in America and stuff and they came back and um, did a tour of relatively small theatres in the UK one year Um, and managed to get a ticket because obviously sold out and by that point I was I I suppose I'm a a, a pretty seasoned gig goer by that point I'd probably been to a, a good few dozen concerts but that was the one where they walked on the stage and paul mccartney walks onto the stage that was the one where i thought wow Mm -hmm. that's one of the beatles up there Mm -hmm. that was a real starstruck moment that was a real Mm -hmm. forget everybody else that's one of the beatles and um yeah and uh, a a few years ago uh, for a christmas present my wife uh andrea carney bought me the the box set of the, the mono um master's box set of the, the all the mono albums or all the ones that were ever issued in mono mm. and that's one of my treasured possessions that is yeah just an amazing library of music and hey, my last bu- one from, from, from hey but before
0: one, before you before you started yeah. buying those albums like like do you remember like was there even like a path to becoming a music fan before that or was it yeah like, I mean I
2: mean Growing up, we had the, the obligatory sort of two-tone dance set standalone record player at home. And uh, my mum and dad had a few albums, probably like things like uh, South Pacific soundtrack and a few classical bits and pieces. And, and one way or another, either my parents or, or myself, we'd buy odd singles now and again. Um, I think the first actual record I can remember uh Spending my money on would have been Sandy Shaw puppet on a string seven-inch single the year that she won the Eurovision Song Contest, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then yeah, probably odd Beatles singles and and I'm trying to think of the singles around maybe a few of the earlier Bowie singles, uh, Carly Simon I can remember, um, but it was that it was that that huge change for me that first couple of months at, at secondary school and suddenly. This whole extra world just opened up, of uh, all these artists that I never heard of before, and fell in love with Frank Zappa, and yes, and and all these incredible yeah. bands. Yes,
0: yeah, so was it was it the, the press that you started paying attention to? Probably not. So it must have been the other kids at school, like you were saying. It's that a they mixture, had-
2: really, because I mean, if you did once you're into music, you you usually read. At least one, if not more, of the, the the weekly music papers at that time, and there was mm-hmm. quite a few. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to to, to favour Sounds and New Musical Express, the two that I sort of read each week. Uh, which, you know, for a long time, that was the only way that you learned about, you know, somebody was working on a new album, or somebody was going to be doing a tour, or a lineup change of a band, or anything, because this is way, way before internet or anything like that. Um, so yeah, and my last one from that that initial end of 73 was this album, um, Rock's Music,
1: mm-hmm.
2: Stranding, which was the third one, um, the first post Eno album, but apparently Eno's favourite, although he's not on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this I can remember, I think, I remember seeing them on uh, Top of the Pops when Virginia Plane was a hit, which was obviously a standalone single. And then I think I bought the single of Pachamarama, which was the standalone single for the second album that wasn't on the album. Um, But then when um, Street Life was the the main hit single from this, when Street Life came out, I'm like, wow, that's fantastic, and bought this out. Mm -hmm.
1: Um,
2: And there again, followed Roxy for for many years. Really, I think the first five Roxy Music albums was of uh, uh, my Roxy music. I can appreciate the latter ones like Avalon and things, but for me it was like the first album through to Siren, that was Roxy music for me. Um, and they're, again, fortunate to see them a couple of times during that period. Um, and like with Bo, it's the whole, it's the, the stage show and the look of things as well that, you know, you obviously got, you know, gorgeous frontman in Brian Ferry, but then you've got these fantastic backing singers dressed in matching outfits, and Phil Manzanera in some sort of clam outfit, and Andy Mackay on sax in some dapper three-piece suit or whatever. Okay. Um, and fairly recently, I've heard a, um, a podcast with Noel Rogers from Chic, um, and Noel Rogers tells the story that when he and, and Bernard Edwards were starting to put a band together, Uh, And they'd got musical ideas and stuff. But then uh, Nile was over in in London for something and a friend took him to a Roxy Music concert. Mm -hmm. And he looked at Roxy Music and the look of Roxy Music on stage, you know. Whereas most bands that time turned up in the jeans and T-shirts they'd worn all day. Roxy were in these fantastic sharp outfits and the backing singers and everything. And he said like, he was like, that's what we've got to do
1: mm-hmm.
2: and phone mm-hmm. Bernard Edwards that night international to America said I've just seen this band called Roxy Music
1: mm-hmm.
2: we've got the sound that's what we've got to do visually <laughs> we've got to have style mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: yeah mm-hmm. so yeah and then following on from that I uh, say so that period covers the first sort of first sort of four months of me really getting into music and then I took out and I discovered so many artists over the over the, the hey, years
1: hey,
0: so followed. for for both Roxy music and Bowie, you said that there are like certain like uh, periods of the career that where you enjoy the music more than uh, yeah. other parts yeah. of the career. Is there any artist uh, where you would say what you love everything that he or she or they have ever done? Probably not.
2: I, there's, there's artists that I like most things, mm-hmm. the, for, for a body of work, I'd still cite the Beatles you know, from yes. start to finish. That's such a journey from for sure. please please me through to Abbey Road is just, you know.
0: You know what, it, what it's like for me is a little bit that sometimes I can take a step back from the music and I sort of like I'm into it because I love to experience mm-hmm. it and, and to see the path that the artist takes. So it's sort of like, sort of like, uh, yeah, maybe I don't like this music as much, or it doesn't, it doesn't kind of like uh, is what I expected or expect. Mm-hmm. But then, sort of like in hindsight, is all it's always interesting to see how, like, you know, if you put it in context with a full, uh, you know, career over decades, it Absolutely. sort of starts making sense, and you can like see how like personal lives obviously the way that that life in general changes over the decades and and all these things kind of like come together in a piece of art and then yes sometimes like maybe there's less inspiration or or when people started using 80s technology for example right yeah, like things definitely. change things change uh, considerably right yeah but and 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 so it seems there's always just a little bit of of like you know like there are all these influences and circumstances and 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 you get a piece of art an album right and it's sort of like a product of of that of that time as much as a product of the artist and and that's why I'm I'm sometimes I'm pretty pretty forgiving you know and I just say okay I understand and I sort of um, then spent also spent serious time kind of like maybe trying to To crack that nut, you know, so to to kind of like get to the core. Yeah,
2: I know exactly what you mean. I mean, um, talking about Roxy Music there, um, sometime last year, I picked up a used copy of Manifesto, which was the album after Siren, after they'd done a break after Siren and then Manifesto came. And at the time I saw the tour, I bought the album. I was unsure about it. Listening to it last year for the first time in a long time, that really stands up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was mm-hmm. really surprised how it was and with the Bowie stuff, even that sort of era that I wasn't so keen on. And with the last sort of couple of years, I've sort of dipped back into that mm-hmm. and it's like Earthling. Yeah. There's some good stuff on Earthling yeah. um, and hours as well. I was, I was surprised with, mm-hmm. but so I, I definitely know what you mean. I, I understand it. Uh, seeing it in, in the context of, of, of a whole life cycle, And and I agree it's worth going back and revisiting some things as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh,
2: So my very quick part of these, I'm going to go through these very quickly because these are my other sort of, the years that followed on just a few of the things that I discovered and and still love. Little Feet. Mm. Uh, This is the last record album, uh, which was the first Little Feet album I bought. And it, this is very much a case of that that whole thing of, um, like you said, word of mouth from friends recommending it. And this was so it's like, we heard this American band called Little Feet, he'd actually bought, there was a, a Warner Brothers sampler that was out in the UK that was like, I don't know, ridiculously cheap, it was 49p and it had two Little Feet tracks on it. Uh, and then read reviews of their first shows in London where I think they were supporting the Doobie Brothers but actually got a standing ovation Mm -hmm. Um, and went out and bought this album and that's remained a favourite of mine for a long time the the grooves on that that was a band that you couldn't really they didn't sit in any one category and the songs (laughs) had a wonderful vibe and feel and groove to them which the combination of like Lowell George's writing and Paul Barrera's writing, but also Little Feat's drummer, Richie Hayward, was a big influence on me. I loved the way that he could take a really off kilter, weird time signature song and make it groove.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I've never known anybody else quite like it. Um, also, Tangerine Dream. Um, Saw Tangerine Dream very early on, on the Phaedra tour, actually. Uh, and there again, love the 70s stuff. After that, mm, I, I kind of have to mix and, and match that. Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
2: <laughs> yes, uh, first time I saw Yes was on the Relayer tour, uh, which was an outdoor show. That was fantastic. Um, and certainly around that time, the first part of the 70s, if, music was had very few boundaries and the old grey whistle test was to say the big uh, tv show in the uk so as well as artists that we've talked about they'd also put things like bob marley and the whalers Mm -hmm. which is reggae but uh, these were being featured on a rock program Mm -hmm. um and i was fortunate enough to see bob marley not on this tour that i saw them on the tour after this Rastaman vibration Uh, wow that was amazing that was it um it was a um what used to be a, a big cinema in birmingham the odeon in birmingham which is a big 2000-ish cinema mm-hmm. uh with a balcony and, and the stalls and and that for a long time that was the main concert uh, venue in birmingham and for bob marley and the weathers i was sat on the balcony and it's like the balcony is doing this mm-hmm. to a worrying extent oh <laughs> everybody was up and dancing and whatever for the whole show and it's like yeah like, oh, is this okay <laughs> <laughs> so i think that bob marley was definitely the most bouncy i've ever seen at, at uh, that show tom mm-hmm. robinson came a, a close second and then the other thing around that time was um Sort of spring up springboarding from one artist, you'd read a, an interview or see an interview with an artist that you liked, and they'd mention somebody else. So you'd go and investigate mm-hmm. that artist. Um and a huge drumming hero of mine was Phil Collins. Um and Phil Collins keeps mentioning this band, Weather Report. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So naturally I went and started sort of investigating weather report. I think Black Market was the first album I actually bought. And then saw them on this tour, which was with Peter Erskine and, and Jaco Pastorius. And that which, was one which, of my Which my which my year first, was
0: which year was that?
2: Ah I remember? can't remember this would have been late 70s. Mm-hmm. I think the tour, this album says 79. I think can't remember if the tour was actually 78 and this was released the following year or if the tour was actually in 79.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um but that was, Weather Report was my sort of in to the world of jazz. Um, and seeing them, and just seeing probably more so than a lot of the, the rock bands that I'd seen, the interplay between musicians, that you got these, I think it was five guys on stage, and there was eye contact the whole time, and they were all bouncing ideas off one another. Of mm-hmm. Um, um just absolutely amazing. I saw them later on with Omar Hakim drumming as well. And the interplay between Joe Zawinul and Omar Hakim was just joyous to watch. Absolutely amazing. But
0: what, what kind of venue was it that they played in the late 70s? In
2: the UK, it was um, on that tour. It, it may well have been the Birmingham Odeon. Uh, so mm-hmm. it would be, they were playing theatre-type venues at that
1: stage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, And I'd say, so first half of the 70s was very much like, you could go anywhere. You could go into the world of folk and investigate John Martin and uh, Nick Drake and Fairport and and blues a little bit and John Mayle and whatever. And then the sort of second half of the 70s was Punk and New Wave, which I loved and still love a lot of that music. Uh, The next one I got here was like the first Ramones album, which I bought by import. Nah, I played that album to death I think I think that's probably in, when people say have you ever worn an album out I think the first Ramones one that I bought on import would been probably one of those it's only about half an hour and I played it over and over and over and um, loved people like the Dand the Ian jury and the blockheads um, but then you started to get this this sort of situation I don't know whether it was the same in in Germany. Uh, and elsewhere, but in the UK, there was very much the um, well, if you're into the Sex Pistols and the Damned and the Ramones, that was cool. And you couldn't possibly like Pink Floyd and Genesis because that was mm-hmm. the term was boring old farts and old dinosaurs. You could, you know, if you're this, you couldn't like that as well. And I was always saying, to the camera, I love both. Mm -hmm. I like this new stuff and I still love the Genesis and yes, everything else as well. And I couldn't see why there had to be this, oh, this is cool and this is okay. And no, 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 that's that's not okay anymore. (laughs) Um, But there was still some, you know, fantastic music from that period. Um, And then, as I say, going on through like the eighties and and, uh, up to sort of like the end of the eighties was say that point that we touched on earlier where vinyl just wasn't being so many albums were not being released on vinyl anymore
0: but so you were still buying lots of vinyl in the 80s or did yeah that,
2: i mean yeah. I, I bought a very basic cd player and, and, and sort of uh, had a a small cd collection but if, if if something was available on vinyl i always used to buy the vinyl i had a much better record player than i had cd player um
1: mm-hmm. uh,
2: but it just got to that tipping point. It's like, do I keep going with both or do I just cut the cord and, and, and go with digital? And and I say, I went digital. Um, but it's that whole thing. And we talked about, you know, the gatefold covers and lyrics that you could actually read that were big enough to read. And you'd, and you'd go through the liner notes as well. You'd say, well, who, who was the engineer on this album? And you, you'd pick an album cover to pieces. And you couldn't really do it with a CD booklet. And I, I know from um, Mark Wilkinson, who's a friend of mine, who was the artist who did all the, the Fish era Marillion stuff and did Fish's solo stuff through to the present day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was sort of like, you know, heartbroken. It's like, you know, back in the 70s, you were creating a 12 inch piece of art. And so much of that shrunk down to a CD cover, just, just not oh. to have the same impact.
0: I know um, but it's it's not as bad as not having any credit credits uh at all anymore yeah. these days right yeah so um you know like for me it was it was also a big part of it, of it like go like reading the the liner notes and and also also browsing uh at yeah. record stores like, oh, like yeah you know like that that was like the main thing right because like if you know, the way it was in Germany, like you had to maybe take three albums and then go into a booth and ask them to play them for you. And and so a lot of the browsing for me was was done sort of here, right? Just reading the names, kind of yeah. making these connections. And, and, you know, there's one story which I want to tell you because I, I don't want to forget to tell you. I had a recurring dream for a long time, like maybe 10 years of my life. It was like this sort of complex of, like uh, like a big department store, but it also had a swimming pool and like there were like uh like all sorts of uh ways you get could get from A to B and then there was a record store in this you know there and and um I was always like like looking for that record store for in the first place. And then when I was in the record store, I was looking for what I in my dream called the Holy Grail. And I was browsing, and I remember that in my dreams I actually picked out albums, and in sometimes I was I, I could like when I was uh, waking up I could remember the color scheme. Wow. Yeah, I could remember the color scheme of the albums, and and um, and you know now comes the really funny thing like that was that was I think that was really like my my wish to to discover that ultimate. Music that I loved, or the the unreleased album by my favorite artist, or something like that. But as soon as I started making my own music, that dream started. Uh, it basically stopped. Yeah. Right. And and I just I just think that's a uh, cool story because sort of at the point when I started to make that music that I wanted to hear, I didn't have to look for it I was in going my to dreams. Say you're
2: working <laughs> towards your own holy grail at that point. Yeah. <laughs> interesting stuff
0: yeah, and there was actually there's actually one and now because there was one color scheme that I then later found in a real album, and that was uh Sylvia the first day oh
2: yeah, yeah,
0: and I had dreamed that color scheme before that album was out, and that was that was Weird. interesting
2: yeah. <laughs> <Weird. laughs> But I mean, I'm sure uh, because what what year would this be for you? Sort of eighties, I'm guessing, mid eighties.
0: Well, this was this was like the so the first album was in '93, and my dream. But I was
2: thinking when you when you started buying music.
0: When I when I, when, uh, when I started buying music was in '83. I bought so my 83, first album in '83. Yeah.
2: Yeah, '83. You're in the same position as me. You had to be careful. Music was expensive you couldn't yes. just go and buy things really nearly
1: mm-hmm. so you had
2: to do like you said you had to do your research in the press and whatever and it's like well whose new album should I go and investigate and and you know, what different artists should I maybe listen to and as you said try and find one of the stores where you could put a pair of headphones on and listen to something um, and, and that I can remember there again early on in my sort of you know Starting to read the music press and learning about all these different artists. Uh, one big leap of faith I can remember taking was Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells, the first release on Virgin Records. And this was before it got known because it was included, it was as part of the soundtrack to The Exorcist, was before that it had been released. It was it was starting on, it was a very slow burner originally. It wasn't a big hit initially, but then it was that whole word of mouth, it started word got out and it started creeping up slowly up up the charts in the uk until it got to it was the number one album in the uk mm-hmm. and on the back of that virgin started taking out sort of press adverts the music papers michael phil mm-hmm. and, it, and it was like but what is this i've never heard of this guy before what sort of music is it because it, none of it was played on the radio or anything or or even on old grey whistle test or anything but it's like it was the the buzz about this album was so much that i remember i'm going to have to buy this to hear it there is such a, a buzz about this album i need to hear it and i can remember buying it and getting it home and having no idea what i was going to listen to and putting it on and and, and lying on my bed on the saturday i remember waiting on the saturday morning lying on my bed listening to it and, and fantastic in you all... You know, the, the changes and the different sort of uh, sections of the piece and whatever. And then, for anybody who doesn't know, at the end of side one, you've got a wonderful person called Vivian Stanchel, who was a, a, there again, a comic hero of mine. I love Vivian Stanchel, introducing the various instruments. Now, this is probably, I don't know, 15, 18 minutes into the side one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah which has been totally instrumental up until that time. So I'm sitting that I think the house is empty, I'm lying on my bed, probably reading one of the music papers, listening to this wonderful instrumental music. And all of a sudden out of nowhere comes Vivian Stanchel's first introduction. Like I forgot what the first one is, but like, two distorted grand piano. guitars grand and a piano. grand piano that was it <laughs> and i chopped out of my skin yeah. <laughs> wondering where this disembodied voice had come from
0: you know it's it's Oldfield's birthday today 68 wow. he 68 today yeah. he's only 68 just think about that and the album is was released in 73
2: oh, yeah, he was, was very young yeah
1: yeah, yeah. You know, like, who would have
2: thought in nineteen seventy-three that that would, you know, be the backbone of a, you know, banking world and an international airline and a holiday company and everything else.
0: And actually, they um, they just announced that they're going to call the first uh, space thing for tourists Jubilee bells. Did you see that? No. Yes, they are dedicating that to to him, which is amazing. Oh, you know, like my first, the first album I bought was Crisis. So that was the 10, 10 year anniversary Oldfield album. Yeah. That, that was the first album that I went out to buy, like, because I wanted to buy it. And I was, I was nine, like, or no, 10, I was 10. And it was, yeah. it was, it was incredible. Like, I still remember that back then in the record stores, they were really like, if they wanted to push an album, they had like uh, walls full of posters for the release or, or like, uh, yeah. Like these, these, these—I don't know how you call them—like uh, cardboard
2: cutouts or cutouts and, and figures, like and, yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: models and stuff like that. Yeah. Those were the days, right? <laughs> that's in- incredible. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean,
2: um, uh, for me, it's the first four, Michael Field. That's mm-hmm. that's that's Michael Field for me. Up to *Jingle uh, Bells* through *Tin Men I like some of the stuff later um and then he did a tour for in the uk i don't know if it went elsewhere he did a tour for incantations which was a pretty big band and orchestra um and that was fantastic they did i think three of the four sides of incantations then the whole of tubular bells and Mm. then at the time he had his his disco single guilty which Mm. i really like actually yeah i love it i like that track (laughs) but on on everybody's seat they'd left um a piece of paper or a card mm-hmm. with instructions of how to fold this card to make a paper dart,
1: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> and then yeah. there was going to be a certain point in guilty where everybody launched their paper darts, mm-hmm. and it was such a joyous thing. Mm-hmm. This was a big arena of, um, I think, probably about eight thousand people at the NEC in Birmingham, and then they've got, they had back projection as well of this glider flying and then and these these paper airplanes were just flying everywhere in the arena it's fantastic
1: well i I
0: really envy you because that that tour and the the live album exposed to me it exposed is one of the greatest live albums ever
2: i think some of that was recorded at the show i was at at birmingham yeah Mm
0: -hmm. certainly some of
2: the photos are definitely from there yeah
0: it's um it it was you know in general i think it was a great time uh, in music because it was just before the eighties, so just before the digital thinking started. Because, like, yeah. even before it was digital technology, you kind of like it was uh, the the thinking changed. I think, you know, and and so like to have, you know, just the courage to go on on tour with sixty people on stage and uh, and then recording every show and all of this. This yeah. is just so wonderful and and you know like then in the 80s they went to uh to not even record a full drum kit but (laughs) single hits and stuff like that it's it's quite you know that that must have been like really like the biggest biggest change in how music was produced was like the uh between 80 and 85 or something yeah
2: and probably again i would say um something that I'll touch on later when we go through. some one of my mm-hmm. recent or recent-ish album purchases
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, with, you know, broadband and the internet, the whole thing of, well, I'll do my bit and then I'll send it to Tony Levin and he'll mm-hmm. record me yeah, four yeah. different bass lines in his studio and send me back and I can pick which one I want.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And
2: then I'm going to send it to somebody else to do the drums etc and that whole thing of of almost having multiple jigsaw pieces to to pick from it's I'm kind of like yes there has been some great music made that way and I can see certainly during lockdown for a lot of people that was the only way that music's been made and it's it's uh, it works for a lot of different reasons but to me there's always been a certain different level. And I think this is coming from from maybe for us. I say with weather reporting and getting into jazz and learning about sort of uh, lots of the fusion stuff, like Mahavishnu Orchestra and Brandex and Bruford and, and people mm-hmm. like that. But then also going off into Miles and John Coltrane and, and Herbie Hancock and stuff. That the the jazz side was had that feel of it didn't have to be bang on the meter. It, you didn't use a click track. It hadn't got to be perfect. You didn't need to adjust things in in recordings. It was more about the vibe and the feel and and the interaction between the players. And that's what's always drawn me, in terms of jazz music, that that interplay between the musicians.
0: Mm-hmm. You see, like um, I think it's not only the um, digital technology to blame for. You know the fact that things have changed so much. It's yeah. it's it's also that just uh, music isn't as much as a business anymore. So Danger. so so really like like you 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 know about this like for Stickman, for example like when we tour like we hardly ever we don't have money and we don't have time to rehearse even. So like we set up just like one afternoon before we start a tour, we play through the material once, and that's it. You know. It's not that we wouldn't want to do it, but you know, in order to, to make a living nowadays as a musician, you basically have to work all the time. And yeah. so any any time that you spend on your art and you're not being paid, you pay. Yeah. And it's it's the sad reality, right? Yeah. And, and and um, uh, you know, and, and that's why, like, you know, like when do I get an opportunity to really record, properly with my band we you know when we play live so that's why you know recording the live shows has become something that and also producing and and mixing you know mixing live shows has become something that has kind of kind of like taken the place of making a record (laughs) in a way yeah yeah
2: but i mean some of that even goes back to the 70s because i mean uh, um, a whole chunk of Zappa's catalog yeah, was basically live shows that he then took and overdubbed and split and changed and and whatever. So it didn't reset. It was not a live album.
1: Yes, but yeah.
2: Lots of the backing tracks for the stuff that like Terry Bozio's on and Vinnie Colaiuta's on came from
1: mm-hmm.
2: the nuts and if you like the nuts and bolts came from live performances.
0: Yeah. And, and you see this is where where i think that um, um, that's why for me uh, an album that is produced entirely in the studio or uh, where the studio is being used as sort of a, a musical tool uh, is 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 very valuable so there's no judgment whatsoever that there's like even if you're overdubbing or whatever like the old field record you mentioned tribal yeah. Belts. well obviously it's not being it has not been played live but it's still it's It's a piece of art that uses the studio to, to create yeah.
1: uh,
0: and and that that you know, and I, that's a, that I find fascinating. That's also why I believe that there shouldn't be, you know shouldn't be such a thing as people saying that something sounds natural. I believe that a recording can never sound natural because it's a recording. No matter how hard you try to capture the natural sound, it really isn't, right? And you kind of like, and and music technology, even early music technology has kind of shown that you have to sort of artificialize some elements for them to sound real on the recording, like, you know, like adding, adding, adding saturation to, um, to bass or to the voice or whatever, to kind of like, and you know, and, um, Anyway, I don't even know how, know how I got here, but I'm just saying, like, there's a, a, as a creative tool, I think studio technology is amazing, and and you know, like that, there are bands, and you probably have good examples where where bands sort of like produce an album, and then like they're being forced to kind of like reproduce it live, and and they actually take the challenge and they become a better band because yeah,
2: of the
1: yeah. right. Well, I'm
2: skipping it Yes, I'm into it? my 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 because it touches on two things that we've just mentioned. Some of my recent purchases. One, which was tailored to last year, is this. Bruce Mm -hmm. Springsteen's last album. Mm -hmm. uh, Letter to you, which I think is absolutely incredible. I was a big Bruce Springsteen fan, late 70s, 80s, up to River and Nebraska and things like that. and lucky enough to see him on the River tour. After that can take or leave him for a lot of the time he's the biggest Bruce springsteen album, i suppose was born in the usa which is probably my least favorite bruce springsteen album mm-hmm. uh, but this one came out and was recommended like a, a list, of, and it's fantastic and it's really with everybody in the studio it was done just over a week i think and it's got that wonderful vibe of, like, a, a, a group of old friends getting together to make music again. And nice. obviously, some great selection of Springsteen material for them to work with. But that's sort of going back to that old school thing of everybody's in the room at the same time making the record. And I think that worked really well on that. And As you say, it hasn't always got to be like that, but I think there's a, it brings a certain magic having... The musicians together to make the music and when you were talking about um the recording technology and how that's changed and and how no recording can really sound natural um, one of the other things i've been uh, purchasing recently is blue note records have been doing a fantastic um, classic vinyl reissue series um, and they're doing i think a couple of, of classic albums every few months um, and there again, if you think about when these were recorded, this is Rudy Van Gelder was the, the engineer on, on most of these. And the equipment they had at the time, the sound is incredible. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, it really was, back then, a producer and, the set, and especially a recording engineer, really earned their money because to get a, an album sounding as fantastic and as, as real life as this, Yes. with the equipment that was in and likewise you listen to some of the um the frank sinatra and nelson riddle orchestra things when they were recorded how basic the recording equipment and it was like a lot of it was done on probably two tracks four at most and yet they managed to capture that magic so uh yeah i know what you mean but i i am really the, the same as you i think there's a certain magic to be had in in people making music together at the same time it doesn't have to be like that, though. Um, both worlds can coexist. Um another album I what tail end of last year, which is an age you'll definitely know, but was new to me until last year, is a gentleman from the northeast of England, uh mm. Ian Body, who I hadn't heard of until a friend, good friend Stephen, uh recommended this to me last year. And he said, Like, well, I know you love like the, the 70s tangerine dream of you. Have you heard of Ian Body mm. and Din Records. And I was like, no, oh. right, oh. <laughs> and he's sent me a load of links. um And this one here is, is Ian's last solo studio album, actually which is a wonderful record. And I know you've done several collaborations with Ian over the years.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: and, and you know, this brings me on to something else that you touched on: is how, as fans, we can help artists that we love keep making music. And this one, um, this album is something I purchased via. I think probably most people have heard of it called Bandcamp. Maybe not everybody has heard of Bandcamp, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Um, but Bandcamp is basically an online, I suppose it's a store for both digital downloads, but also you can order physical things from them as well. Mm -hmm, But unlike most of the streaming services, they try and get as much of the revenue to the artist as possible. Which I think is fantastic. And over lockdown as well, they did these thing called Bandcamp Fridays, where basically they waived all their fees. So if you bought an album for twelve dollars from an artist, that artist received your twelve dollars. Which for so many artists at the moment, especially independent artists, was such a lifeline. So, you know, if, if if anybody watching or listening to this hasn't gone and browsed Bandcamp, do so because there's so much fantastic music on there and it, it's people who, who deserve the income um and like was, uh, that bruce springsteen one would, that one is one of if you can't buy from the artist or you can't buy from uh merch standard a concert, try and support support your local independent store um one of the things we've been up here on orkney for years now and, and love it more and more every day uh, and we're incredibly fortunate that on Orkney we have a great record store called Grooves. And I'd be lying if when we were deciding should we move up here or not, mm-hmm. I would be lying if the fact that there was a really good record store didn't sway me slightly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey so and uh, Orkney Grooves is the record store. That you bought it from, right? Because I was wondering, because you sent me this list, and I was wondering if that was the label. But which which label is the Springsteen record on?
2: Oh, Springsteen's still on a major label. I think it's um, it's CBS, which is now owned by Sony. Because that, that's the other thing in in terms of the music world that we live in these days. There's Sony, and there's you Sony Universal and Warner Brothers, and that's about it. everybody yeah. else is owned by by them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I would encourage people go and look at Bandcamp, or if you go to a gig, buy something from them, or if you can't, go to your local independent record store. And I think I read there's a fantastic uh, thing I read on Facebook around the time of the last Bandcamp Friday, where somebody had actually worked out that if you went and bought one album from an artist on Bandcamp,
1: mm-hmm.
2: the revenue that reached the artist was the equivalent of you playing their music every day for two or three years on a certain streaming service. Yes. That's how little revenue the artists get from these streaming services. And it's something that I think, you know, in the UK over over the last year, there has been um, some of the artists that I've worked with in the past have, have been, you know, waving flags and making noise that, you know, that this can't really can't go on because it could kill, you know. So many independent artists could just go. You know what? It's not. It's not worth it anymore.
0: Well, you know. Let me add to to that um, because even or not even so, especially if you buy, if you don't need physical product, you know, buy the download. That really is is really should be the message yeah. as well because because if you buy the download, you know that you you own it and you can listen to it like five million times. And yeah. you you see you've spent your nine nine pounds, right? Or something like that. Right? Exactly.
2: So if, if Spotify were to go bang tomorrow, yeah. where's all your playlist disappeared to? They've gone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the other great thing that I found with Bandcamp as well, I'm a great I, I a great believer in, in trying to get as most out of the music as possible. So they're again from sort of like a teenager on i've been interested in hi-fi and, and trying to hear as much as possible of what was put in what the artist put into that recording um so when for a time before cds came along you had cassettes were battling and, and overtook vinyl sales in the uk for a while and it's cassettes that are dreadful
1: mm-hmm.
2: um and it's like you know here we are in current day and it's why are we putting up with mp3s Mm -hmm. there's no reason yeah with storage so cheap on phones wi-fi speeds so fast there's no need for mp3s which is compressed down so much and one of the great things with bandcamp as well is you can have an mp3 if you want an mp3 but you can have a FLAC file if you want a FLAC file
0: exactly so
2: yeah so yeah mm-hmm. and one of the other things there again a, a, a recent purchase and uh, this again was through um Bandcamp. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this album this is um a guy who was originally from orkney um a guy called uh Erlen cooper and mm-hmm. erlan cooper's music is it's one of those which is is difficult to define because he's almost a, a composer more than a musician, although Mm -hmm. he does play quite a few instruments on the albums, but he'll also have lots of guest artists on the albums. He'll have guest vocals on the albums. Um, Quite often he will incorporate uh, either uh, natural sounds, such as birdsong and the sound of the the sea and the ocean. He'll incorporate that as well, and and spoken word uh, clips and and samples as well. Um, And he's done a whole, I think a triptych of albums, and I think this is the last of the the trio based around uh, Orkney. The the photo on the front is one of the old Crofts, could well be very close to where I'm sitting now. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you haven't discovered Erlen Cooper, I would encourage you to, he's on Bandcamp and there's lots of samples to try. Mm -hmm. Um, In the UK, uh, BBC Six Music, which is the station I listen to most over here, um, they picked up on it and had it as one of their albums of last year and gave it a lot of airplay. So Erlen Cooper, there again, that was one where I bought the download and then oh, this is a nice vinyl as well, so I bought the vinyl from Bandcamp as well.
0: <laughs> um, Fantastic. <laughs> hey, so in your 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 travels, um, did you find any any gems when you were out on the road?
2: Oh, definitely. I mean, um, once I got back into to record collecting, as I say, around the second half of 2006 and, and the years following, um, I was kind of ahead of the curve because vinyl hadn't become trendy again at that mm-hmm. point.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Vinyl was still on the decline at that point. The, the sort of resurgence hadn't really happened. So certainly for the first few years after I got it back into vinyl, there was very definitely um, bargains to be had on, on my bits and pieces i've got next from the road because it was one of those things i say like record stores have always been a happy place for me on the rare occurrences we have a day off on a tour or half a day off or or even a couple of hours some people will go sightseeing and others will go and visit the local bars me i'll google best local record store and take myself off Um, and that's my way of like, you know, I'm a great one for lists, and especially doing tour management, I've got endless to-do lists categorized. And that's a way of leaving all the to-do lists to one side for a few hours, just concentrate on, on crate digging and browsing. And say so there was great bargains I picked up early on um, on tours. This one was from. Uh, I think this was when I was out with tour managing uh, one of Stephen Wilson's side projects, Blackfield, and we did a short run in America. And this was a, a record store, which I don't think is there anymore in Boston, close to the uh, Berkeley School of Music, that I happened on purely by chance. And, and I was just out walking and happened upon this store that was um, completely disorganized. So it was, a, it was a true crate digging journey. You just had to sit and plow through it. Uh, But this is like a pretty much a mint copy of George Harrison's first post-Beatles solo record, All Things Must Pass, which is a triple album. And I think I picked it up for like eight bucks or something. Um, And it's a wonderful thing because it's a proper box set and you've got the individual records inside. The third album is sort of studio jams, the Apple jam thing, which doesn't get a lot of play. But in terms of of the proper studio tracks on this album, you you realise what an underused writing resource George Harrison was in the Beatles. Yes. Because uh, there's so many fantastic tracks on that. So that was a a very, an early on bargain. One of the places, if I'm out in California, um, I always try and get to uh, Amoeba Records. Uh, There's a big one in San Francisco I've been to several times. Huge one in LA, which has just moved very recently, and I haven't obviously been to the new one, it's it's opened during the whole COVID thing that they moved. Um, but it kind of harkens back to your dream, because if you walk in to um, Amoeba Records in LA, certainly in the old one, I'm sure it's it's the States, have played with the new one too. Um, and the last time I was there, one of the recent times I was there with, with another uh, co-friend of ours, Sid Smith, the writer, Well I went out for there and took Sid and, and whatever, well, probably on one of the King Crimson rooms. Amoeba records give you a map when you walk mm. in the door. <laughs> That's my sort of record store. You need a map to find your way around. Um, so a real bargain, I picked and I picked up a load of bugs from there, but this one, Lost Lobos, if you remember one of their early albums, How mm. Will we'll Survive, this is. $1.99 mm-hmm. yeah. so
1: that
2: was a real bargain
1: mm-hmm.
2: um but even so i tend to find I, I, I say i'll do this wherever we happen to be in the world on tour america tends to be probably more of a chance of finding bargains in the uk the prices of lots of secondhand vinyl has sort of risen over the last 10 years or so um germany berlin so you have some fantastic record stores in, in berlin mm-hmm. um, Especially, I'm trying. Can't remember. You will probably be able to tell me the name. Last time I was uh, there, and I only had a couple of hours, and took myself out. And it was a store uh, very much focused on electronica and ambient.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I can't remember the name of it, but if, I, if you're into that world, you were in heaven. Yeah. 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 So I say a lot of the the ones I picked out are more uh, American because America tends to they they work on the, you know. Sell it cheap and keep keep the units moving, keeping the stock fresh. So, on one of the the um, Steve Hackett ones, we were in Ithaca, which I think is in New York State, which is a lovely mm-hmm. little uh, sort of university town in America. And they just had in. I bought these. For, I think it's five dollars each. John Barry's James mm-hmm. Bond soundtracks. Um, so, Diamonds Are Forever, You Only Live Twice, and Goldfinger. All absolutely fantastic. You know, James Bond. Movies of the seventies would not be the same without John Barry's music in the mm-hmm, background. Mm-hmm, so they're mm-hmm. all fantastic. Um, <laughs> going back to my thing of like just Googling best local record stores. Uh, this was on a different Steve Hackett tour. Was um, so this on? It's like oh, people are recommending this place. Okay, so I get a taxi out. For I've got a couple of hours. One afternoon, I took a taxi out. So this is on the outskirts of Pittsburgh. At this place called Jerry's Records. So I have the address and I get a taxi, and get, taxi drops in at this address, and I get out, and I'm like, oh, well, there's like a, a like a radio repair shop there, and there's a laundrette or something, and there's just a doorway with Jerry's Records above it. I'm like, oh, have I done the wrong thing? It's going to be okay. I'll look while I'm here. Walk up the stairs, and it's an Aladdin's Cave, all used vinyl, all secondhand, pre-loved, absolutely enormous. You can't mm-hmm. believe it. And every time, I've only managed to get back there, I think once or twice since, but they have a massive, massive jazz section. Lots of um uh, the German ECM label, I'm a big fan of ECM releases, mm-hmm. and, and they tend to be, I don't know whether the American distributor was, was very free and easy with, with promotional copies because lots of the ECM ones I've put in America have got the promotional silver stamp on them. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. way, way cheaper, certainly than you can buy them in England or Germany. Uh, but one they're on about th- just odd things that you can find out the do this was at the jerry's one which was this and this was i think it was two or three dollars which is um a female artist who, who was first well known in the 1970s judy zook who was signed to elton john's um Rocket Records initially, and, and it's a test pressing for an album I already had. Her first album, Welcome to the Crows, wonderful album, um, some beautiful songwriting, and she's got a real a fantastic band on it as well. But this, uh, my copy of the my proper copy, was probably a nineteen eighties uh, mid price reissue, and it's quite flimsy. And it's a, it's a really well recorded album. Mm-hmm. And this test pressing that I bought for for say two or three dollars must have been for the American release of it, and I would guess dates back to the 70s. Um, and the difference in sound quality between those two pressings is amazing. The, the test mm-hmm. pressing just sounds incredible. So that was two or three dollars. Um the last thing I bought, Crate Digging in America, was one of those ECM albums, this one, which is Tom Vandergelt. Um ECM is one of those labels which I tend to find pretty much everything is worth a listen. I will, I'll have favourites within the catalogue, but they do sort of apply a good filter to their artists, and pretty much they're all worth giving some time to. Mm -hmm. And this one, I say this, I can't. I think this was, I think it was three (laughs) dollars, and this is lovely ambient jazz, almost.
1: Vibrophone,
2: mm-hmm. acoustic guitar, um, double bass, uh, flute, and soprano sax. But this was bought um, March of last year.
1: Last uh, sure. year. Arrived,
2: we arrived in uh, our first show in Pennsylvania on a Thursday afternoon. Uh, we'd heard various things that the whole COVID thing was really, taking over the Western world or or about to. And um, we were due to be on um, one of the rock cruises, Yes,es cruise to the edge. We were we were going to do this run down the east coast of America and then get on the cruise. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the band and the crew were starting to get nervous about being on a cruise ship with this this mm-hmm. this virus starting around. Um, but it was it was a very, very strange to so say we arrived Thursday afternoon um at the show um, in Allentown and our promoter was there he was the promoter for the next few shows said like the sold out shows Saturday and Sunday aren't happening they've Mm -hmm. closed the theater Mm -hmm. oh right and then a couple of hours after that we heard it's not been announced but the cruise isn't going to happen by the time we were due to drive away from Allentown the next morning florida have closed all their venues so we were left with two possible shows i think Mm. something like that um and we had to you know between contacting our promoters and our booking agent in america you know that we had to say we've got to go home because we don't know what's going to happen so we drove straight from from allentown we drove to philadelphia uh And I then basically hold up in my hotel room in Philadelphia for I forget how many hours Mm -hmm. on the phone to because it's not that easy as just booking flights. You Mm -hmm. know, when you're midway through a tour, we've got a bus, we've Mm -hmm. got equipment, we've got merchandise. What's Mm going to happen to all those things? I've got a higher van to drive the band around. Mm -hmm. So probably started from when we when we arrived in Philadelphia. I don't know. Late morning until well into the night, uh, on the phone to our say the, the venues, the promoters, the bussing company, our freight company, the merchandise company, uh, our travel agents. So we managed to get people booked back on flights. Uh, mm-hmm. So the band all, and the crew all flew back on the Saturday. Um, Steve Hackney and his wife Jo got friends coming to see them, so we flew back 24 hours later. So for to try and clear my head after all that fog for a, a couple of hours on on Saturday afternoon I think it was after I'd waved goodbye to the crew and the band. I went out and there's a there's a store in Philadelphia I go to called um, long in the tooth records. Uh, so that was my last tour crate digging until until hopefully later this year when when things kick off again.
0: So, yeah let's let's yeah. hope for let's hope for the best.
2: Yeah you know? I mean at the moment we're we're uh, we're hopeful that you know if the vaccine rollout carries on and people aren't silly over the summer in terms of, of you know
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know maintaining some social distancing and and the, the obvious things that should be second nature to people by now, um, but not everybody either thinks they it doesn't apply to them or they're above it or whatever. So let, let's keep fingers crossed because I say. We should be playing Fairport Conventions Property Festival in August. Will be our first show mm-hmm. uh, since last March, and then following on from that, we have the big UK tour in September or October. So we can cross fingers and hope for the best.
0: Yeah, for me, for me, it will probably be uh, August in the US, just for just for a week. Because, um, like you know, like the one, one other. Kind of issue that's coming up is now that like uh, where there is some perspective and and bands are kind of like booking shows again or shows that uh, shows uh, tours that were postponed are kind of like going to happen. It's going to be super crowded, and so like I can already see like quite quite a few conflicts for Pat and Tony to uh, to play Sigmund shows, even though they were you know because the Crimson is trying to play out again and yeah. and and. and, and and then there's other stuff that I can't talk about, but there's uh, you know, there's there's quite our a bit American, of activity.
2: Yeah, well, um I was chatting with our American booking agent only a couple of nights ago, and he's finding it uh doubly difficult trying to move the reschedule these dates the second time because we're the sort of more optimistic view now that things are gonna start happening hopefully later in the year so many tours are getting rebooked for next year yeah. and because with, with Steve Hackett's show we tend to play mostly sort of nice theatres mm-hmm. uh, rather than we, uh, we'll do the occasional sort of like big club show we shy away from arena type venues and like King Crimson we, we like to play nice theatres
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, and because it's not just uh, rock bands trying to get bookings for next year it's also, because it's theatres, it's theatrical productions and musical productions that will often book out a venue for a week or two weeks for, for rehearsals and then a run of shows. Mm-hmm. So our uh, booking agent is frantically challenging these dates and, and hitting balls. We're winning slowly, thank goodness, uh, but it's taken a lot longer than it would normally take to, to put together a, um, a good American tour.
0: hmm mm-hmm. A, um, are you still playing the drums?
2: Very, very occasionally. Um, it's always been a a, a labour of love for me. Um, I realised relatively early on. I so I, I did a few auditions for, for well, a few well known one very well known band and one semi well known band back in the day, and, and didn't get either. This is going back as a teenager or in my early 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, but with me, I took up the drums and I started playing drums to make music with other people. That's that's what I love about playing drums. Mm-hmm. Um, and over the years, I've done rock stuff, I've done covers, I've done blues stuff, whatever. It's that, that interaction of making music with other people. Mm-hmm. Sitting by myself with a practice pad or a kit and playing rudiments and whatever, bores the hell out of me
1: mm-hmm. and
2: I don't have the discipline to do that
1: mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of got good enough to do to, to get away with most things
1: yeah.
2: um, but I, I haven't got the, the the mental discipline to sit and do rudiments and things like that which you have know, the top players do all the time and spend hours on every day to perfect their art but yeah um I, I occasionally play so i say it's covers bands and stuff like that i've worked um over the last sort of 18 months worked with a, a musician called paul mcguire paul who's another somebody who's moved up from he moved up from cambridge up to walkway um he's a keyboard player and a, and a writer and i did an album with him so i right now because of lockdown my kitty's over at his studio an hour and a half about as far away as you can be on Orkney and still be on the main island. Mm -hmm. My kid's down at the studio there and I'm right up in the, in the Northwest uh, tip of Orkney. Mm -hmm. So now things are, uh, are starting to ease a little bit And in terms of the islands in Scotland, we're down at uh, what the government has said is based, the Scottish government says the lowest level until we're back at normality. Mm -hmm. so you you can go out. You can have, I think, as of Monday, you can have certain people in your house, and you mm-hmm. can eat at a restaurant or whatever. So, so I can hopefully go and, and retrieve my drum kit now, which has been mar- marooned for a good while over the other side of the island.
0: And you will be able to go to a restaurant in the summer, probably.
2: Yeah, we uh, we could prior to the restrictions went up again for a while um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you could actually have a meal at a, at a cafe or a restaurant during the day for a while at the end of last year i think but mm-hmm. that that's reopening again now and um, i mean for me, um uh, tourism is such a, um, a major part of the island economy
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: my wife andrea is is an independent uh, artist and she has a studio out in our garden uh, that she planned for for so long um, and that was delayed it, it was built <laughs> it was like a it was a wooden unit that was built and over the other side of the All islands and couldn't be moved when the initial lockdown was on
1: mm. um,
2: so she actually got that in place um, sort of during the uh, late summer last year and she's been working from there that's open as a, as a studio and a, a working studio and a gallery as well um but you know, at at the moment, there's there's very few visitors because, you know, usually we'll have cruise ships, we'll have several big cruise ships a week up here, all mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
2: of that, and, and we mm-hmm. don't know when that's going to restart. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, anybody travelling up from England wasn't allowed to do so for a while. For a while, even from Scottish mainland onto the islands was only out of necessity. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that whole easing thing so we're hoping that you know her business will start to pick up over the summer as well as we start to to welcome visitors back to warning
0: yeah good good luck <laughs> good luck so, to all of us to all of us yeah hey yeah. so let's let's do one last thing i mean i don't know how well organized your collection is okay because okay. i want you i want you to do the opposite i want you to just draw a random album the shelves if you can okay.
2: just let's, let's see behind what got. Yes.
0: <laughs> not even look yeah
2: well. move the tape move the chair back slightly to reach <laughs> yes, you know, yes which is in the middle somewhere We've no idea what we're pulling out we're pulling out the pretenders first album wow <laughs> which is a goodie i remember buying the pretenders uh, the, um, the singles originally which was kid and stop you sobbing and a brass in pocket and this album came out uh, when was this sort of late 70 79 this came out?
1: Yeah.
2: So this was around I remember this coming out around the same time as, as The Wall was very close to this. Mm-hmm. It was like late 79 and the Clash London Calling, which is another favorite.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: yeah. So yes, the, the mystery album, the random album. The mystery album,
0: random album the pretenders first of- album.
2: <laughs> which is not it could have been far more embarrassing than the pretenders. <laughs>
0: and it's so wonderful to talk with you it's Um, been
2: great to have a catch-up chat it's been wonderful yes and let's hope it's not too long and too far down the road where we're meeting at a venue somewhere and some music Uh, is being played live
1: although the the
0: cruise ship next year probably if Uh, steve is going
2: we can't do it Uh. because the dates were changed we'd Uh built we remember I said all the problems that we had. We built a whole tour mm-hmm. around about working down east coast, doing the cruise, and then mm-hmm. carrying on midwestern out to west coast. And then mm-hmm. the date moved a week, and it's like, well, we're going to lose a week of our tour, and we're going to have everybody sitting in Florida for a week. So yeah, it's that's not going action, to work. But we, uh, Steve's already agreed that he will go back and do. Steve was gutted we couldn't do it, but we just we would lose so much in yeah. terms of the, the tour planning and stuff but yeah. um, uh, so 2023 you'll be, be definitely on the 2023
0: one cool but we're, we're we're going to see each other before that i hope so <laughs> thank <laughs> you so much and uh talk to you very very soon
2: take care stay yeah, safe and Bye-bye. see you soon somewhere at the venue coming coming to a venue hopefully fairly soon near you yes take care marcus Bye. bye
1: bye